Hello everybody, welcome back to Local Earshot. Finally back here, it's been a busy week y'all man. Uh, <clears throat> last weekend, me and Jonathan covered a, a whole mess of local shows here. One of them was a, a backyard punk show. You don't get much more DIY than that. Um, then we went over to the Blue Note. Saturday we saw Perseus again. Our friends in Perseus, they put on a show. Another band from Tulsa came down, uh, Shelter in Place. They put on a pretty good show, too. They're a newer band, and they, they rock the house pretty good, you know. And uh, then there was another band, a guy out of Oklahoma City, goes by Straight White Buffalo. He's more on the acid rock, doom rock scene, and I really liked him. He uh, he invited us to a party this weekend. I'm going to try to at least stop by. I don't know if I'll be able to because Saturday's my own birthday. So, uh, <clears throat> we got a little bit of a change of pace today, I guess you might say. Um, being Memorial Day, we got a veteran with us in here today to tell us his story. I actually grew up with the guy. Uh, Brian Wofford, how you doing today? Doing pretty good, man. Doing pretty good. How are you? Peachy. <laughs> Jonathan, how you doing, man? I'm all right. Jonathan's also a veteran. Yeah. What years did you serve? Uh, 2006 till 2012, and then two inactive. Okay. And you? When did you? Uh, I took the uh, express lane to retirement. I was in from <laughs> 01 to uh, July of 05. I'd say it's a, a hard-earned retirement. Um, Brian uh, is a Purple Heart recipient. Uh, 2004. Why don't you uh, lead us into that story there, how you got that award there. Uh, okay. Uh, so, took place, uh, I was in Iraq with 1st Squadron, 7th Cavalry Regiment, 1st Cav Division. Uh, and we were doing a grand reopening for a sewage pump station that we'd rebuilt. So, the sewage system was really messed up in the area we were at, and from my understanding, most of uh, the country. And one of the things that we saw that really made us need to rebuild this sewage pump station was there was a like an open air like farmers market out here in Iraq and it had been flooded probably two inches of sewage all over the ground Jesus. and they're still selling open air fruit and bugs and everything else flying around. They have strategically placed rocks so that they can step from rock to rock and stay out of the sewage. Damn. And essentially we were like, hey, we wouldn't let this fly in America so we can't turn blind so it, well, here just to have a quick question is this this is due to the fighting uh i'm not sure okay. i i was there in 04 <laughs> is when we went so we weren't part of the initial invasion so i can't speak to the way it was before okay i can only speak to the way it was when i got there and and when i left um but so anyway that motivated us to do this sewage rebuild and we did and so we're doing the grand opening for the sewage pump station. Ironically enough, the entire time I was over here, this basic, this is the only legit 100% mission that I went on that was all peacekeeping. Normally I did night missions and stuff like that, patrols, roadblocks, search and seizures, uh, what we affectionately called meet and greets, where we're kicking people's doors in the right, middle of the night. Right. And, so uh, most of your, your action was infantry. Cal uh, cavalry, well, but cavalry, infantry. Yeah. yeah, that's... But, uh, I mean, you on foot, I mean... Ironically enough, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, we, so I, I normally did night missions, which obviously is the most dangerous time because they got the cover at night. They can get in, pop you, and run away, and stuff like that. And this was in the middle of the day. Uh, so we had come back from a night mission the night before at like six a.m. ish, and I got woke up at like eight nine, and they were like, "Hey, Sergeant Walford, uh, we need a NCO to 
TC the five ton, which stands for truck commander. So I had to be in charge of the vehicle that's carrying all the sound equipment and everything for the grand opening. And uh, so I was like, all right, let's go. I jumped out and got in the car. We went over there. And uh, basically we get there and we set up. And in Iraq, anytime you stop as a U.S. military personnel, anytime you stop, kids just flock you. And so what we had developed was that we knew when we... When we got out, we would just kind of spread out, push them back, and that way they're not right on top of our vehicles. And that's twofold. One, so that they can't throw a hand grenade underneath your car when you're not looking. And two, so that if you do get attacked, they're not bundled up on you. So if it does hurt a kid, like it's one kid, not all of them. This is this is September, right? Uh, September yes. of 2004. So this is at a point where we're still seeing stories of them actually using the kids as, as weapons themselves yes, and all this absolutely. stuff. So like, this is a threat, ultimately. In the same year, there was a guy in the green zone, which is supposed to be the secure area of Baghdad, where a kid drove by on a moped and they threw a hand grenade mm -hmm. under his Humvee and just kept going. Because they're in a uh, moped and nobody's in that Humvee, they're gone before you can react. Unless you can pop them there but your weapons are cleared so you got to load all right, that right, so right. highly unlikely you're going to be able to a lot more to time. it than the movies yes for give sure. you the idea of yeah. for sure uh so it's a real threat um but we basically just try and keep them spread out so in the military you have space and distance so if you get hit with an explosion it's just you right so we keep that same mentality with the kids spread them out so that you can, they can't hurt multiple at the same time and that's basically what we did well we're waiting, you know, hearts and minds in the war and all. So we're waiting on the media, local media to get there to take pictures and stuff so that this can go out about the good stuff we're doing in this country and uh, not just the bad stuff you hear about. Well, it takes forever and forever and forever. Finally, they show up and leave. Uh, well, when they leave, we collapse and get ready to go. And as soon as we collapse, we have literally, like, a circle around us keeping the kids back. Well, we're all getting in our vehicles and leaving now, so the kids close in on us. And uh, I'm in the five ton, and I'm in the passenger seat of the vehicle, and I check our blind spot, and I tell my driver, All right, we're clear, go ahead and pull out. And my driver shifts it in the drive and goes to pull out, and a car comes around from in front of us, around a corner, and comes within a couple feet of us, uh, hitting us head on, and then detonates. So he blows himself up. Luckily for us uh, in the vehicle, they were so close to our vehicle that the vehicle took most of that blast, shielding us from it. But my driver took shrapnel to his face, my gunner to his face. Uh, I got a scar on my jaw that was had a piece of metal that went all the way through my jaw. It was an egg-sized hole stuck out of my face a couple inches. Damn. Um, and some shrapnel between my eyes, above my right eye. But nothing too crazy. Uh, the windshield actually blew in and was in my driver's forehead, like kind of stuck into it. So we pull it out of there, but it's still you know just over the top of it. You know your skin's not too thick there. Throw it back onto the hood, and I tell my guys, I said, let's hit the ground, pull security for the medics, get them the fuck out of here so we can get the fuck out of here. And right as we hit the ground and got to where the medics were, another car came around a different corner and pulled in between me and my driver, detonated. Threw us both through the air opposite directions. Uh, my driver actually lost his right leg below the knee on how, contact. How, how close proximity are you talking here? Within five feet. Holy shit. It was on you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so my driver lost his leg below the knee on contact. As a matter of fact, one of the, uh, other vehicles found his boot with his foot still in it. Jesus Christ. And they threw it inside of their ice chest with their drinks and whatnot and, uh, took it to the hospital hoping they could reattach it. They were not able 
to do said thing, but... Uh, a for effort. Right? <laughs> um, so when that happened with me, it threw me through the air about 10 feet. And it, I remember that moment being in slow motion. Like, you hear about, like, your life flashing in front of your eyes and all that. If I had an experience like that, I would say that this is when that happened. But I wouldn't say that that's what it was. It Time seemed to slow down and drag on. Uh, but all I kept thinking about was my mom and my mom having to bury her son and how much that was going to suck for her. That's just constantly on replay in my head. And then I hit the ground and I'm like, hey, I'm still here. Uh, so I stood up, took about six or seven steps, uh, collapsed on my left leg. I low crawl back behind an up armored Humvee. This time we're taking small arms fire. I try to return fire. My rifle does not work. Uh, I applied sports, which is reaction to stoppage to correct it. Still didn't work. I found out later on that the bolt was kind of, uh, out of lack of better words, like welded in place. So because I was so close to the uh, explosion, the superheated mm-hmm. uh, metal kind of jammed up or whatever. I'm not sure. Yeah, how any it metal, if it gets super warm yeah. and then super cool fast, right. it's yeah. It's so fun. that that basically rendered my weapon inoperable. Uh, we get security of the area, pull up a cordon uh, with vehicles, not letting anybody else in. Uh, but right before we block it completely off, another car came comes in. And an Iraqi National Guardsman's there, and he stops the vehicle, and he's yelling at or he s- slows the vehicle down, and he's yelling at him to stop. And the guy's just kind of slow rolling. And because he's doing that, the Iraqi National Guardsman takes his AK, and he's going to butt stroke the uh, window, break it, and yank his ass out of the car. Well, when he rears back to hit it they hit the plunger and they detonate completely disintegrates this uh national guardsman uh like they found parts of him on buildings jesus christ distances away and uh so at this time uh my injuries are my entire right leg was peppered with shrapnel like literally dots completely covering it uh i had a big piece of shrapnel took uh to my right hip uh, I have three holes in my left leg, one on each side of my calf and one on the outside of my thigh, all three the size of a football. I have a hole the size on each of my inner groin the size of my fist. The one on my left side severed my femoral artery. They did a vein graft for my right ankle to replace that. I had a hole in my right hand, uh, and it broke my hand. Took a tiny piece of shrapnel. You can barely see the scar at my right elbow. And it just so happened to sever my radial nerve, complete severance. So for six months, I couldn't lift my wrist or extend my fingers. Um, four stitches to my penis, shrapnel on my sack, but it's okay, ladies. Everything still works. No worries. Uh, and now well, I'm ripped well, for her pleasure. So. I mean, oh, nice. <laughs> uh, I mean, severed the femoral artery. I mean, most people or most... I mean, my wife's a nurse. She'd tell you if you, that it, you're talking seconds before you bleed out, at least of consciousness. Even if they get it cinched up, so this memory in slow motion you have couldn't be more than a few seconds, right? Uh, so ultimately, when this happened, there were eleven U.S. soldiers injured, no U.S. fatalities. As far as I know, only one Iraqi National Guardsman uh, passed away. There were. I've, I've seen different, depending on which article you read, there's different numbers, but the first one I ever read and the number that stays in my head that I remember is 49 Iraqi children uh, were killed. Jesus. So and I had a friend uh, named Aaron Stelly, 
uh, he uh, he wrote like a back in MySpace days. Uh, they had the journal entries, and he felt he had one of those on either the first or second anniversary of this uh, day, and he referenced it as something along the lines of like a little kid's room, and his toy box is just scattered throughout his living room, but instead of toys, it's parts of people, small children, right? So. It's just it felt like everywhere you looked you saw parts of kids. And for me that's that's the worst part. Like I explain all these injuries and that always gets the rise, that always gets everybody paying attention. But I will take my injuries tenfold over my PTSD. My PTSD is so much more of a hindrance. We've talked about this too, and um like I said, we've been friends for many years and it's it seems to me and after we talked a couple weekends ago, uh, kind of uh, verified it, that your, your PTSD, or at least the longest lasting, isn't even actually from the blast. Correct. That's, that, that, I think that might surprise a lot of people. Uh, it's index trauma, so. Yeah, for me, it's, 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 it's almost like survivor's guilt, right? It, it's... I, these people, these kids were just living their life in the place they were born. I chose to go, well, kind of chose, I chose to join the U.S. military, the most highly deployed military in the world. And I came over there mostly voluntarily, right? Like I wanted to be there because I thought it was better for that country for us to be there. Uh, so I am voluntarily putting myself in danger. These kids are just born there and then they're the ones that die and I'm the one that survives. And I just... For me, that was hard to swallow, and that was hard to deal with, and so I constantly have that feeling of failure to all of those kids. So I, the rest of my life, I've lived as it's my job to make sure bad shit doesn't happen to other people, and I am fully aware that I'm completely incapable and powerless to that. <laughs> However, it's it's kind of something that I was getting into, and I actually didn't answer your question earlier. I just uh, realized the femoral artery. Oh, so yeah, I told you all yeah. of, all of those injuries. So U.S. policy, at least it was then, is that we don't evacuate anybody else until all U.S. soldiers that need to be evacuated are gone. And then we start evacuating everybody. Now, that being said, ambulances that come and stuff, they take the civilians, not us. Um, So there was 11 U.S. soldiers injured. I was one of the last ones evacuated because I was so calm and coherent when it happened, which, looking back, 100% is... uh, Due to blood loss? Well, it's... it's, um, Oh, what's the word? Shock. Shock. Yes, yeah. thank you. So it's the shock. You know, I didn't realize how hurt I was. I didn't realize how many injuries I had and, and that I was bleeding out. But uh, so I was the last of eleven soldiers evacuated. People are coming up to me, Sergeant Wofford, what's wrong? And I'm, my left leg hurts. I can't lift my right hand, but I'm all right. Go help someone else. And so they would. And because I'm there and calm and coherent and talking to people, they don't think anything serious, not knowing all of the injuries, same as I didn't know. So they load me in the helicopter. And the helicopter takes off, and I black out. Like, once that happened, once the helicopter took off, I went unconscious. I vaguely remember landing in the green zone at the hospital there. Uh, but it was more like a dream, right? Them pulling me off of the helicopter, putting me on a stretcher, pushing me into the hospital, and asking me, what's your social, what's your unit, what's your rank, what's your name, all this stuff, you know? Over and over and over and again, I've heard. I only remember the one time. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so that happens, and then the next thing I know, I wake up in Walter Reed in Washington, D.C. 
reading my files, I have found out, and talking to doctors in D.C., not the ones that operated on me in Iraq, I find out that when I got to Iraq, they noticed the severed femoral artery. They did the vein graft, and during that vein graft, I actually bled out. I had bled to death, and I was clinically dead for 30 seconds. Whoa. And they resuscitated me, leveled me out, all that stuff, then shipped me to uh, Landstuhl, Germany. And I was there in Landstuhl, Germany for a little bit, uh, for like a week, I think. And Did they end up putting you in a medically induced coma, or were you just uh, So I went out. out, and then they kept me out. Okay. With, okay. They called it mother's milk. I'm sure there's a more medical term for yeah, it. Yeah, I know what you're talking about, though. But yeah, they, they kept me out, but I went out on my own. So I don't know if I would have stayed out, how long I would have stayed out or not. But I was, it was only like a week and a half-ish that I was in, in a coma. Uh, but I wake I woke up in D.C. My mom and my newlywed wife at the time were were already there. Uh, but yeah, I talked to the doctor there, and he said, you know, like you you shouldn't be here. And his his rational thinking, he said, the only things that make sense to me is either because you were so close and it was so hot when it went through, it might have cauterized the wound as it went through. Or it wedged itself in there just enough to slow down the bleeding long enough for me to get to medical care. I mean, it's the U.S. military, and we were in Baghdad, which is where the green zone is. We didn't have to go far to the hospital, so I'm sure our <coughs> evacs were happening pretty quick. A series of unfortunate and fortunate events led to you being here. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> man. But still here. Yeah, still here. That's interesting, man. I, you know... <clears throat> We actually thought about doing this episode, and, and you know, I knew Jonathan had served, and we had a, a comic on Greg. He he was in the army, and I started looking around. I'm like, my God, I know a lot of people that that have went off to war or, or served. And you know, I mean, when I when we were in high school, everything was kicking off in Iraq. So, um, I was thinking about this before you came out here, and I'm like, you know, I don't really remember being recruited all that hard when i was growing up uh the navy was the only one that actually called the house or and actively sought me out and i thought that was kind of weird being as how it wasn't going into war but i didn't think of it at the time but looking back on it i thought that was maybe weird i thought they'd be trying to scoop up as many as possible but uh what, what was your experience with that is that like how, how as far as how did you get in and and what led to everything else uh that's actually a pretty good story uh so i Took the ASVAB like almost every high school boy. It gets you out of class. And yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter how you do on this test because it doesn't affect your GPA. It doesn't affect your placement and nothing. Like it's just literally I can get out of class and screw around for a little bit. And that was part of the reason. But I also, you know, my family has a history of military service. My grandfather was in every branch of the military. My uncle was in the Army. I have a cousin that's more like an uncle. He's my mom's cousin. Uh he was in the Air Force, so like my fam my great grandfather was in the Army, so I have a family history, so I felt that drive to continue that legacy of my family, but also it was it was a way for me to get I, we were very, very poor, so it was a way for me to get a college education that I otherwise couldn't afford. Uh, it was a way for me to go out and travel the world, which I wouldn't be able to afford otherwise. There was a lot of things that it accomplished for me that I am very grateful for. Um, but leading into it, like, I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to join the military. Uh, and I got letters and stuff in the mail pretty frequently after I took the ASVAB from every branch of the military except for the Army. And uh, I went in uh, to see recruiters from the Marines and, 
just didn't seem like a good fit for me. Uh, and ironically enough, I was at my brother's house and his sister-in-law uh, was there and she had signed her military contract recently, uh, her intention to go to basic training with her recruiter. And her recruiter came over to, you know, just hang out and talk to her and make sure she was still ready to go and excited about it. And he sees me and I'm a young athletic uh, military age male. I'm 18 years old. Or actually, I think I was 17. Yeah, I was 17. This was between my junior and senior year of high school. And uh, he he looks at me immediately. He goes, how old are you? And uh, and I tell him, I'm like 17. And he's like, Has you, have you taken the ASVAB? I was like, yes, sir. He's like, do you know what you scored on it? I'm like, I, I don't know. I was told it was pretty good, but I have no idea. And so he's like pulling out his laptop. He's like, so what's your name? And then <laughs> typing it up. And, uh, he pulls it up and... He immediately closes his laptop and stops paying attention to my brother's sister-in-law <laughs> and immediately starts talking to me. And uh, as he's going, it, it's funny because he's, he stopped talking to her and she ends up not joining. And I'm almost certain that that is one of the biggest <laughs> uh, reasons. Uh, but uh, it was another funny thing about it was he, uh, he's asking me, all this information, and then finally he gets to, so where, where do you live? What school do you go to? And I tell him what school I'm at, and I'm in Midwest City at this time, over by Carl Albert. And uh, so he's a recruiter for that area. Well, they're not allowed to recruit from other schools. So as soon as he found out I was from McLeod, he's not allowed to talk to me anymore. So he, he immediately, like, clams up, and he's like, all right, so I got a friend that works at the Shawnee <laughs> Recruiting Agency that I'm going to contact, and are you willing to talk to him? That's kind of how my journey began towards the Army. Uh, but, yeah, it was, it was entertaining to watch him completely encompassed in her and making sure that she's good and excited about going. And then as soon as he found out that I was a military-age male, he just shifts well, them recruiters, I tell you what, man, uh, I worked with a, uh, he was a retired chief out at the power plant. <clears throat> and I, th I think the last few years of his before retirement was recruiting. And that dude, just in conversation, you could tell he has these skills that they have picked up. And I'm like, that dude could convince me of anything, I swear. Just yeah. riding in the truck, he'll start talking and I mean, he'll sell me anything. God some, dang, of the, uh, man. some of the best car salesmen that my nephew, like, because he works at a dealership, he says are, are usually the ex-recruiter military guys. <laughs> they can talk you into doing Sell anything. Sell you anything. I, mean, I, th I think anything. it's out of experience, right? The more you talk to people, the more you associate, the more you get tuned into the human nature and the reactions of different things. And you can start reading things like, I'll start with this pitch, and then I see your body language, and I shift pitches because I know that you're not into that. Yeah. And I think when you're a recruiter it's, it, for that long, and they're on you about hitting your quotas, like... You, you oh yeah, have to, you have you have to, to do to. the same thing. Even whenever you're in, when you're deployed um, as a sergeant in Afghanistan, you'll get these young troops, and they're they're having shit days, and they don't want to be there, and they hate it. And you you have to like know what they like. You have to know a little bit about them. You're like, hey man, just think about that dirt bike when you get home, dude. You're gonna buy that shit. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah. You gotta calm them down, and and like they'll be like, yeah, yeah, man, it's gonna be fucking awesome. They'll start working on gear. They don't they don't care after that, but they most definitely they get really shitty though. So. Oh, I mean, you can, I mean, yeah, you can imagine, you know. That, that kind of reminds me of one of the, I say hilarious, one of the weirder things about PTSD is I, uh, I, I can't tell you a time when I was in Iraq that I was scared. 
And I don't say that because I want you to think I'm some badass or something. Because I'm of, not. Was it out of ignorance and being young, you Man, think? Or? I think it was overconfidence is, is a better word, I think. Is that I was... So I... I joined the army and had motivators every step along the way to make sure you're paying attention and you're going to be good at this job, right? So I signed my contract between my junior and senior years, so we're talking 2000, right? Uh, so this is before 9/11. Yeah. So I'm in basic training, learning how to probe for mines with your hand, how to dig the ground for mines to find mines in the ground with your hand and a knife, which is ridiculous in itself, but. I'm learning how to do this when 9-11 happens. And I he overhear the cadre, the teachers of these classes, talking about it. So we go to bathroom break, and I tell the other guys, and they're like, oh, they're just screwing with us, man. This is another one of those mindfuck games that they're playing with, playing with us. And I'm like, no, they didn't know I heard them. They're talking to each other, not me. And then we found out later on that day uh, that 9-11 happened. So then... Of course, you're going to basic training and you are joining the military in a combat MOS, so you take it serious anyway. Mm -hmm. But when your world gets shifted to the point where you know you're going to war now, because we're in Afghanistan at that point, and now we're definitely going somewhere else or ramping up efforts in Afghanistan, because at this point, you know, we don't know who did it. Yeah. Uh, and so we, uh, we, we all start taking basic a lot more serious and focus in. And uh, then after that, my first duty station was Korea. And I was in Camp Gary Owen, Korea. We were literally the furthest, which doesn't exist anymore. We gave it back to the Republic of Korean Army, the South Korean Army. Uh, but we were the furthest north camp. We were, we're not the furthest north camp, uh, but we are the furthest north camp that doesn't retreat if North Korea invades. Mm. So, like, it was, we were the spearhead for the counterattack. We affectionately called ourselves speed bumps because, you know, if they come in, they're coming in with the Chinese horde as well, right? Like oh, yeah. China that, has their back, and that's why we didn't win the war to begin with. So if they're going to do it, they're going to do it with China. They're their military tactics are still very horde. much World War II troop movements, tank mm -hmm. movements type style that's really not even fought these days. Right, but at this point in time, like the modern war was... Like, drones, we didn't yeah. really know about. Yeah, that you're, right. you're right, you're uh, right. So this was still, I mean, your tanks were probably, in your your Navy and your bombers and stuff like that are probably still your best weapon at this point. Uh, your man-led man uh, equipment. But, uh, so anyway, we're that. So I again, I get to Korea, and at any point, North Korea can attack, because the Korean War was on a ceasefire. Yeah, not, never, not never actually ended, yeah. yeah. So at any point, they can come across the border and invade, and we're probably all dead. So again, get good at your freaking job. Maybe you'll survive. So again, that year in Korea, very real, very close threat. At any point, you're at war. So again, very motivated. Then I go back to uh, the States, and I get stationed at Fort Hood, Texas with 1-7 Cav. Uh, and while we're there, we get on orders to go to Iraq for the initial invasion. Uh, at this point, Fort Hood was encompassed the 1st Cavalry Division and 4th Infantry Division. And we both came on orders to go. Well, luckily, the Army was smart for once and realized that if we do this, the economy dies around Fort Hood because the entire post is gone. And this is the largest Army post in, in the world, I think. Yeah, when they say Fort Hood is a military town, it literally is a 
all military town. Absolutely. Copper's <laughs> Cove, Harker Heights, Colleen, all of that stuff yeah. is dependent on them. Most of them are military people, so your schools are going to be almost empty, all of your clubs for sure, uh, all of that stuff. So they realized that this wasn't a good idea to deploy both. So they ended up canceling First Cav's uh, orders, and then we that's why we ended up going in 04. So we were the cycle then. And, uh, oh man, I, I lost track. Where was I at? Fort Hood. Uh, then where'd you go from Fort Hood after that whole thing? Oh, yeah. So talking about being, being geared up and, and taking training really, really serious. So come down on orders for Iraq for the first invasion. That gets canceled because of 4th ID also going. And so again, you know, your training is very serious because we're going to war. And then those orders get canceled, and a month later we got our next orders for the next year. So there was no leeway of, okay, we're not going to war. Let's relax a little right, bit again. Right. You know, it was right back to, okay, well, now we got a heads up instead of being dropped on us. And so I was pretty lucky that my military career, even though it was short, it was just packed full of very intense, very focused training. So I had the confidence that these guys don't train the way we did, right? This is... Al-Qaeda and their training in caves and do, I've seen their training videos. I'm not impressed kind of thing, you know. And like I said, this could be ignorance. This could be overconfidence, whatever. But I, I always felt like if I can affect the outcome, then I'm going to win. I'm better trained than these guys. I, I'm good. And I got my guys backing me up. Uh, obviously, that's, that is ignorance. Uh, but... But I think it was it was it boiled more down to confidence in my training and knowing that I knew my job really well and I was going to react the right way at the drop of a hat, and that's I think that's kind of leading into what what we got on this tan, uh, tandem about was that's why I don't think I was ever afraid while I was over there, and as you were talking about is I I was the guy that I would crack jokes when I you can tell when people don't feel like themselves right you know these guys you've been with them in the trenches for a while you've known them even longer. So when they're off, you can feel it. You can see it. So I was always the guy that gave them the hard time jokingly, you know, like, oh, don't be a pussy, you know, but also supporting them. And when we're off on our own, I talk to them about what's going on. You never had a, uh, I don't know if people can relate to this, but that fight or flight anxiety feeling that hits when you, when you either are hit with of news or you get thrust into a situation you don't remember feeling any of that when they told you that you are going to war my fight or flight mechanism is stuck on fight and it's a character flaw that i have that i hate about myself like if me and you get in an argument and we are both intense on our beliefs like i'm not leaving until i feel like we've we've accomplished this like i am 100 percent sold i'm in to resolve this conflict. I'm not afraid of conflict. I don't want it to blow up, but I my job is to fix this problem, not to that's, make it yeah. avoidable. And that's how I, I am too. That's kind of uh I, I and I get what you're saying and and like I'm not I'm not typically intimidated by a conf, uh, confrontation um but there's still a physiological f reaction that I feel when I go into a rage or I go into a fuck this kind of. That's odd. Uh, you feel it in your gut, like mm -hmm. it's. I, I don't. I, I don't want to call it anxiety. It's not, but it's similar to an an anxiety feeling. 
Yeah, I, I, I know what you You mean. don't remember feeling that when you were told you are going to war? I mean, that, that to me would be like, holy shit. That not, would be an oh shit moment of life. Not in Iraq. And it's funny that you asked that question because that question kind of leads me to a, a brief story that is the reason why I am aware that I don't ever remember being scared over there. Is when we came down on our orders, uh, a guy named Sergeant Boner, great NCO, E6, Staff Sergeant. Uh, great last name. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, lots of jokes. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious because we took a, a class as a group. We got the new Bradleys in, so we all had to learn the new systems. And in that class, they're taking roll, and they're like, Staff Sergeant Bonner. <laughs> Nobody says anything. Everybody's crickets, right? They say, Staff Sergeant Bonner. He's like, it's not how you pronounce that. I'm going to need you to say it right. <laughs> and he makes this, this guy call him a boner, right? Uh, but anyway, so nice. after we came down on these orders, he pulls, at this point, I'm an E4. I hadn't got my stripes yet. And he pulls all of us lower enlisted to the side, and he, he's having a conversation with us. And he basically says, hey, look, I know you're scared. I would be worried about you if you weren't scared. And I remember when he said that, it clicking in my head, what the fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> like, why am I not scared? I know this is serious. I know that I can die, but I'm not scared. It was almost like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I am the type that was build, built in a way that I am willing to die for you to make the world better. And I don't say that to get fucking brownie points or anything like that or to look good in front of the girls. Like, I, I know in order for things to get better, there are hard choices and hard actions to be done in pretty much anything, right? talk about relationships uh, earlier me and you did and same thing in relationships you know sometimes you got to make a choice or a decision that you really don't want to but it's for the betterment of your relationship and in order for all things to get better and to move forward there has to be somebody willing to do those difficult things got to break a few eggs yeah you got to be willing to do those difficult things and in war sometimes it's pulling the trigger sometimes yeah. it's being the one that's out there doing something that has to make that sacrifice so that other people are better off. And for me, like leaving behind a legacy like that would, it would be worth it. Right. I think human nature is always about leaving behind something that lives on beyond you do, right. Whether it's your children, whether it's your career and the business you made, whatever it may be. I think human nature is to leave behind some sort of legacy when you're gone. And I was, I was really good at being a soldier. And I think it, that set in me that this is your calling. This is what you're supposed to be doing. So it, it never bothered me that at any point I, I could not come home. Okay. The part of that that bothered me was, like I said, knowing that my mom would have to deal with it, knowing that it would hurt my family. It had nothing to do with me. Uh, so I think that has to do with why my fear wasn't there is because if I died, I... I, I was doing my job. I was doing what the most I could ever do to truly impact the world on a global scale. When in 50 years, in 100 years, when I'm long gone, there's books going to be talking about when I was over there. Now, they may not mention me by name, but my legacy is there, yeah. right? Uh, so, so for me, I think that's probably where that comes from, where you, you just – and it's – it's not that you don't realize that it's a dangerous situation or that bad things could happen. It's there are, there are more important things at that moment than fear. You're thinking, you're not thinking at all. 
And, and this was another thing that the I was very grateful that. for my training. Yeah. yeah. yeah you, you do the same thing over and over and over again. So when <clears throat> crap's popping off left and right, your immediate reaction is to naturally revert to your training. And you just do. You don't think. You just do. Uh, I've heard uh, veteran friends of mine say the first time they actually experienced a firefight, they actually do not remember the firefight because they their brain clicked into this training mode and they didn't get to recall it until afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's actually um, what they talk about in uh, CPT and um, and in PTSD type trainings is that like you're you 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 store these events in the back of your mind and they're they're called like index traumas and then they create these stuck points so then like how he's saying like that he has uh confidence you know you could lose that confidence after that event so then right. so then right. that that confidence that you build up over those years that one little situation could cause it where you start second guessing yourself and you start thinking about and then you're like my friend uh he was in a bunch of roadside bombs and he would and he would always say like what you were saying you know you you get this guilt and you're like you're like why did i survive that shit why did i do this you know and so then you just keep on creating these little points and those points they come out in your relationships they come out with your friends they come out with fights um and then you you either escape uh you know you 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 fight or flight um and so like um learning i guess that like um from what my therapy was was that learning that went to recognize when it's happening because because yeah, yeah. i'll go off the handle in a bar and I'll start talking about shit that's like related. I'll be like, man, you guys don't know shit about the fucking war. You don't know shit about this. Like, I'd go off, and I'll I just catch myself. And they they like, don't and know people, shit and about looking it. Looking at you like, dude, like calm down. And you're like, you're like, they really don't know. I'm like, I'm like, and then you have to pull back, and you'd be like, shit, I'm sorry, guys. I gotta I gotta step out for a minute. And then you just like you clear your mind. But like that, but like those friends that are your good friends are the ones that know you're yeah like you it's not it's not smart to suffer in silence gotta have a good network yeah because if you have good friends and you have good family then like they understand i think that's whenever to do it and they they know how to talk to you and philosophy for life in general i mean definitely i I had a uh, a guy that was killed on the job and, and essentially he was crushed right in front of us but work uh we'll say uh told us to go talk to these people they brought in because it's a traumatic event, okay? And I, I wouldn't say it really traumatized me in in a shock fashion, certainly not at the level you guys are talking about, but uh, this doctor did lace me up with what the processes are, and she said something that was actually kind of probably true in that, you know, the longer you live, it's almost like PTSD is, is just a, it's going to happen. Like, it's going to be an event. And she went on to say that uh, most car accidents are actually the number one cause of actual PTSD. But they don't actually seek help for it because the symptoms, they don't recognize them. Why can't I sleep? Why do I keep waking up with cold sweat, this, that, and the other? And and she kind of, she just educated me on what it is and how far we've come since, say, like the World War II Vietnam veterans come back. And the veterans... They get the, the the spotlight for PTSD mostly because of the level of trauma that war brings and the amount of time that that fight or flight switch is kicked on and left on when you're over there. Well, I think it has to do with uh, what is more 
exciting to the human brain, right? Like, you might not enjoy that these people died and it's blood and gore, but it's that story is more captivating than the story about my recruiter, right? The story about all these blood, guts, and gore catches your attention and locks you in place where this funny story in, entertains you for the time of the telling, but tomorrow you're going to remember the blood and guts story, not the funny ha-ha story. Well, is that just morbid curiosity, you think, or...? I, I think so. I think so. I think it's it's the desire to experience things without the desire to actually be there in a situation like that. Yeah. Like, it's a way for you to experience it as close as possible without actually being in danger. But it's also, I mean, I, I, I wrote a paper in college about uh, the skewed media, and it kind of hit it on hit on this, where I talked about the Iraq war, and I was like, it's kind of our own fault, right? Uh, we talk about the media being skewed. Well, the media is paid by ratings. If they don't get people to show up, they get fired. They get... I don't know why that... Uh, so if they don't get their ratings, then they get fired. They get replaced. They get whatever. So they... Uh, so they pitch towards us, right? So like hypothetical situation. If you're watching the news and it does the teaser thing before it goes through commercial, right? And if they do in that teaser, they're like, hey, today we're going to talk to you about the 12 hospitals built in Baghdad, Iraq. Well, you as a viewer, I got my information. That's all I need to know, right? Because I don't know the local area. So if you tell me that it's in uh, this part of Baghdad or this part of Tikrit or wherever it is in the Middle East, you know, like you don't know that area. You don't know anybody that lives there. So it doesn't affect you. So natural human nature is... I have all the information I need. I'm good. I don't need to see that story. Now, if that's, that teaser instead was, today in Baghdad, there's a suicide car bomb and 13 soldiers died. Now, everybody is tuning in because the, everybody knows a soldier or knows somebody that, that's family member is overseas, and they want to know, okay, does this affect me? Does this affect the people I care about? And it's, it's more of an exciting story. I want to know more about that story. When you tell me 13 uh, schools or hospitals were built... I'm like, all right, that's awesome. I'm really glad that happened. Like, it doesn't diminish that achievement any, but just human nature isn't to get more information about that. So, therefore, the news cycle has to be those things that get your attention. So, you'll stay tuned into them instead of the other channel that will feed into that. Yeah. It leads, it leads. Yep. Well, and it's like, you know, especially like we've seen over the last election cycle, and I'm going to tiptoe around this. I'm not going to dive in, but... <laughs> You could see it, and you could see it on both sides. Absolutely. And the catering, the pandering, essentially the the left and right became special interest groups in their own bubbles. And it was really frustrating to see because I'm kind of a middle-of-the-road guy, you know. It's just it was really really frustrating to see that, and then like you said, you know this is isn't, it's not new. It's just probably more extreme today. But you're right. I remember I remember the footage, the Iraq invasion footage and stuff. I mean, I was in high school. Those those memories aren't blurry by any stretch. You but know? do you remember any stories about building hospitals? No, or? it was a it was mostly and negative. So that goes I, back I, to that that I'm telling you. You're gonna yeah. remember my blood and gut story, and you're not gonna remember my recruiter story. Yeah, yeah right? you won't. You won't that's remember. What sticks with your mind. Yeah, you won't remember the stories of like. Uh, like you know um, the 32nd the squadron that I was in in Germany that we'd go to Africa and we'd go to um, the Middle East and we'd drop like these big um, you know like because they were a fire or a heavy squadron so they had like all the uh, planes that were the C-130s and they had like all the um, like, like 
humanitarian missions and stuff. Uh, we did missions for for NASA where we like we did all these space missions and like they had to fix stuff on the spaceships, and are at the I guess the space station. And and so I mean you won't remember those stories, but if I told you any of the stories about the fighter squadrons, you know the stories about the Strike Eagles and the and and all those crazy stories and how. Like, um, our air crews, you know, they, they had ejections. And so, like, one, one of the ejections that happened was in, um, uh, it, was, it was in Africa, I believe. Um, and it was one of the shoots I, I helped pack. I was training on this shoot. It's one of my trainers. And, uh, and the, um, the pilot ejected. He hit the button. Uh, we, in aircrew flight equipment, we train them. We're like, we're like okay, you're going to hit the button. You're going you're gonna to eject. You know, this is this is what's gonna happen. Forty thousand feet, your chute's gonna open. This is gonna this is the process, you know. And when the plane ejected, the the pilot goes out the jet. The weapons officer in the back, he came up, and his neck clipped the glass, mm. and broke his neck, killed him, right? But we don't know this at this time, you know. And so like they they come over and they say. Uh, they're like, they're like coming over the things that I guess like all the little, um, talking to command and all that. And they're like, um, Hey, you know, they're saying his call sign and they're saying like, um, you know, copy, copy, are you there? Copy. And they're just sitting there constantly over and over again, trying to get this person's attention and his body's just floating down. So when they found him, uh, the plane was crashed, totaled out, um, you know, F-15s are nuts when they crash because whatever they hit. It's going to be demolished. So they're, they're in the middle of the desert. So, uh, but crash happens, ejection happens. The the pilot, he, like goes, hey, where's my weapons officer? Now, what they don't really tell you about that side of, of air crew is that um, with with working with those guys every day, they're like family, right? So like we're connected to them. We shake their hands every day. We high five them. We we congratulate them when they have successes. So we have a lot of connections in the air crew flight equipment world to our air crew. They're like our children, you know, in a way, because we're there to protect them. And so whenever they came to us and they said, hey, there's an ejection, and we're like, oh, shit. Like, did I pack, who packed that parachute? Who did this? And you start looking at all this stuff because there's all these laws in place that, like, you can go to prison for this. And so you're like, you're like, did I make a mistake? I don't know if I made a mistake. And you feel this, like, sense of just... Like, you don't know what to do. Well, and, and sadly, then, at that situation, whether it's your fault or not, you're going to always blame yourself. Yes, and because right. you think that it's something you could have done differently. Well, isn't, so, isn't that a normal reaction to traumatic events in general, though? I mean, think just, of how you just could throughout have life. Absolutely. And, and, well, and, and that's the thing is, so, like, uh, weeks pass, you know, and, and, and we see this. Um, they put the air crew, the, the pilot, on leave, and we see him around base, and, I mean, he's not talking He's just walking around and he's real quiet and it like and uh they had to pull him in and he just was like yeah but there's something i could have done differently why couldn't i pull the plane a certain way why couldn't i done this why couldn't i done that those are situational like these what they call like um what ifs yeah is what they call them and so then you're just like oh what if i did this what if i did this but you can't you can't harp on it you can't look back on that because the situation happened and so you can't do that but like all these air crew it wasn't just them it was like everybody that was assigned to those missions for sure the the guys that that did the egress the guys that did the explosives the guys that did the um the actual like jet glass that hit him you know it's nobody's fault that it happened it just happened to be that he was going at a speed 
and it just happened. Everything functioned, but how he died was not was not anybody's fault. Right. It just was just happened, you know. But all these people have a lot of guilt in 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 the Air Force for it for that one situation, and they they all feel like they could have done something different. But then what what we normally do inside the Air Force is we go back and we look at the situation. We evaluate, we send people in, they, they investigate everything, and then we figure out what can we do better to avoid this again, and then we do it again. But uh, there was like a total of three ejections whenever I was I was in the military, and um, and I mean, and they were all in my squadrons, and I mean, it's it, it kills you, because like you go to these funerals and you see these like people doing the flags and everything like that, it just kills you. Heard a pilot and, describe ejection as uh it's only a small guarantee you'll have an open casket funeral. If you if if you survive is still a very small chance. Especially at the high speeds, high altitude. No for sure. Yeah, know. especially out of a jet. Yeah. I mean C one thirty they ditch them so like they, they crash the C one thirty. It's, it's literally out, the but, last resort. Like this might most likely kill you, but you might have a shred. But yeah, and, and, <laughs> and you have your, all your army guys, you know, in the fight are in the heavy side that like we would we would fly over areas in Iraq and and Afghanistan and stuff. And they would all jump out of the planes and everything like that. So we supported them um, in Afghanistan. We supported Kanhar Valley and the uh, the. Um, air support for all the army there but even the army guys there if you ever watch the documentary dr strapo is really good um the the dude is like he's he's playing a video game like he has it rigged up to a like a um generator and he has like video game playing and i don't know where these bullets just start hitting the ground and this dude's like oh shit and then he's like running away from all these bullets and these bullets are just tapping the ground and um and then he starts shooting back but then somebody starts shooting from over this side like the other side of the mountain and he's like, shit. So he starts shooting that way. So he starts shooting this way. It there's these tunnels throughout Afghanistan in these in these mountains that they just run tunnels and tunnel and they just shoot at you. And I think Restrepo it's, is it's also nuts. the one that uh, it's a base in Afghanistan mm-hmm. that's yep. like in a valley. So yeah, you're, you're, you're surrounded by high ground. ground. Valley. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're just surrounded by all these people and these villages and and all these villagers. They're just trying to protect their families. They don't. They'll give in to the to, uh, to the. Um, the I got I don't Taliban know, the Taliban or whatever whatever groups running stuff at the moment, um, and they they just give in to them because they're just trying to protect their families. You know, bullet um, to your head will be quite the motivator. It's quite the um, negotiation tactic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but. Well, what are you up to now, man? As far as like post uh, post injury, I know your recovery. How long was your recovery process for that? Uh, I was in the hospital. Physical. <laughs> right? <laughs> Ongoing. Yeah. Uh, so I was in the hospital after my injury. Uh, I, I got hurt September 30th of 04. And I got retired out of the military July 31st of 05. I want to say June of 05 was when I left the hospital. Uh, they wanted to keep me there much longer, and I basically told them, look, all I'm doing is physical and occupational therapy every day. This is all stuff I can do at home, and at home, I have my support system. And I would rather just be done with this, go home, and finish this than stay here, away from my family and friends, and just constantly come back to this hospital and do physical therapy over and over again. Right. Like, I've in sports my whole life i know what it's like to work out i can do this on my own thanks um but i I think like i said i think sadly the thing that they focus on less in those situations and the thing that they should focus on more are the same thing 
and that's the the PTSD, the therapy, and all of that. And I I don't know if it's that it's so deeply ingrained in me or or what. But I, I've done just about every bit of therapy the VA offers, and I think me and you have talked about this before. I don't honestly feel like the therapy itself helped me. Right. But what I do believe is that the therapy gave me knowledge and tools so that I can help myself. Right. So I have learned things about myself and about my reactions and about my PTSD that helps me manage it. That's ultimately all most of that is, is... An education. Like a psych doctor, when they made me go talk to that one, and it's not because I was resistant to going. (laughs) Well, it kind of was. But, you know, when you're talking about fixing, even if it's an injury, you ultimately have to put the work in. You know, doctors can give you medication. They can bandage you up. They can show you the proper rehab. But you still have to take the meds. You still have to work the injury. You have to do this stuff. And if the injury is a mental, it gets way more complicated because they can't just throw a bandage on it. You know, they, sometimes medications uh, and questionably work uh, depending on the person's body chemistry. Absolutely, and and there's no there's no clear cut for everybody, right? right? Like if if you have a femoral artery severed, there is the same reaction for your femoral artery is the same for mine. Right. Well, for PTSD and stuff like that, it's not the same. Uh, through my injury, I had so many meds that I was on. I think I was up to like 20 something prescriptions a day that I was taking. These are, these are prescriptions, not pills. So some of them I'm taking multiple pills. Um, and I was on morphine instant and morphine timed release, right? Uh, had tons of it and just constantly on it. I hated it. I had severe hallucinations and stuff and everything else brought on by the morphine. I had withdrawals of morphine multiple times nothing medical ever seemed to work for me and i said morphine that's more for the pain and the physical stuff but even the antidepressants and uh sleeping meds and all of that stuff never seemed to help uh more recently within the last year or so i've uh got into medicinal marijuana and i will say i grew up i tried weed as a kid i did it every once in a blue moon as a teenager as an adult i maybe did it three times now I smoke every day, um, and I I can process more of what's going on around me than I ever could before. Uh, prior to medicinal marijuana, uh, which, like I said, was in the last year or so, I think it was November, a year ago from last November, so two Novembers back is when I started smoking. And uh, prior to that, so we're talking 2000 and what is that, 19? Yeah. Uh, from 2019 to 2005, when I got hurt, I didn't sleep eight hours. Not once did I sleep eight hours straight. Uh, I averaged six to eight wake-ups in a night and three to five hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. So you're not even getting into that REM no, no. good, healthy sleep. Yeah, so... So if you look uh, into the science behind it and stuff, all of this only makes anger management, yeah. memory issues, and all that but worse, which are already symptoms and signs of PTSD. Yep. So it makes you irritable, and, and then whenever somebody says something during the day, you get mad. And I think anybody that really knows me can good sleep. can uh, accommodate or 
uh, acknowledge that I, I am that guy. Like I want nothing but the best for everybody around me and I'll do anything to help you. But I'm also a hothead. I, I can fly off the handle at times and you need to word that as passionate if you have it on a job application. Oh, is that, is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, passionate. <laughs> I mean, I mean, most of us are pretty passionate about our subject matters. Well, whenever we, you know. But, I mean, yeah, it's... Um, I, I, I'd like to point out a few things about about like the like what you're saying um, about the whole medicinal marijuana and all that and PTSD. Uh, there was studies done in... Um, in Colorado by a group that was a nonprofit that was actually studying the effects of marijuana on PTSD and veterans. And they found that like it, it actually does um, help if you have the, the proper strains, the proper uh, bud tenders, the proper people helping you. Um, and then you're in the mental health departments at all the veteran centers, there's the paper and it says that the veteran, that, the VA is not going to stop your benefits or your medical anything if you're using mar- medical marijuana. If it's legal in that state, if you're Correct. doing, if you're in, a, if you're in a state and it's illegal, then y- you're kind of up the creek on that one. But if you're living in a state where you can do this and and stuff, I mean, I highly recommend it. I I I, I used to I, I've destroyed friendships, I've destroyed relationships, I've done a lot of stuff like that. I smoked weed when I was a teenager. Uh, but then whenever I, uh, but whenever I got out of the military and stuff like that, I, I kind of was just fun and doing it in college and stuff because uh, I lived in Colorado. But whenever I moved back home, I realized that there was a lot more deeper inside that was going on, and and um, and I lost a few friends. They committed suicide and stuff like that. So I just kind of like had a breakdown. But then I started. I I went and got my medical card. And I started smoking again, and and I mean it's it's definitely done. It's it's a world of difference in life. Absolutely, I can actually live again. But I mean, it doesn't get rid of it doesn't get rid of all the PTSD or any of that kind of stuff. It doesn't get rid of all the situations that happened in my life. But it does help, and so I, I think I think that that's extremely important. Yeah, and, and proper care, like like you're saying the. Um, the types of care. Some people group therapy is a thing. You know, like you you can go to the VA and you can sit down with a group of people. You you kind of like the camaraderie of like the the brethren and and all that kind of stuff. The family that you have with the military, and so like some people drive to that. Some people drive to the single. I I learned that I had to go to the therapist that was just one therapist, and I meet with her and I do things like CPT, which helped me. But I, I know that CPT does not help everybody, you know, and so that that's that isn't an acknowledgement that not one type of therapy works for one person. You have to find what therapy works for you, and then the medicines like they, the VA will pump you full of medicines when you initially get out. They will try every medication on earth to try to fix you. You're not broken, you know. Nobody's nobody's broken. It's just a matter of finding like what works for you. So if medication works for you, cool, do that. Do what works for you. But I mean, but like for me, all the medication just made me want to kill myself. So I was like, once I had that feeling, I was like, I never had these feelings in my life. Nope, not doing it. And I just stopped all my regiments. I went right to my doctor. I was like, I ain't taking that shit. And my doctor was like, well, it, you know, you have to like, just give it time. And I'm like, nope, it doesn't work for me. And then and, and and that's when I started smoking pot again. So, and that, that's what blows my mind is that our government and even civilians uh, that don't have experiences in, in that area are completely content with us pumping ourselves full of 
narcotics. Uh, the VA is known for over-prescribing narcotics to their people, to their uh, and they test new to their ones. patients. They test new ones nobody's ever tried before. And and yet, so if I'm out on the street and I pull out my bottle of opioids and I throw a handful in and I throw them in my mouth, nobody looks at me twice. But if I light up a joint in my car, yeah, you can't do that because there are children here. As as a passenger <laughs> in my car, I light up a joint, yeah. and everybody is is gonna look at me as if I'm a worse person well but then opioids is such a bad epidemic and if and people die i think that ultimately comes from our generation of the nancy reagan just say no we were taught that heroin and pot are just as bad and Mm -hmm. i'm let me uh after a few withdrawals of my own let me tell you they are not even close (laughs) (laughs) oh man but hey i I mean you guys I mean, I, my purpose for smoking pot and <clears throat> is just because it makes me feel good, and that's a good enough reason for me. So, well, that doesn't hurt. It don't hurt, you know. But I think that's part of it, right? Like, oh, oh yeah. I would, I would say when when people ask me about PTSD and what it what it feels like and what it's like, I try to explain it like I don't. I'm not always angry. I'm not always depressed. I'm almost always very neutral. And I almost have no peaks or valleys. But if I do have a spot where I'm supposed to have a reaction, and I know I'm supposed to have a reaction, and I don't, my body replaces that with anger, right? So the reason for me uh, that PTSD exists is because when you're over there and you're seeing things and you're doing things that are morally questionable, right? You're putting bullets towards people and they're putting bullets at you. This isn't normal. Your brain can't function like it normally does and continue to do that stuff efficiently, right? If you start letting your emotions and stuff play into it there, then you become less efficient at your job and now your buddy next to you might get hurt in response. So you tap into some primal shit. Yeah, so your brain turns off a lot of your emotions. Like I can't get broken up because my buddy got shot because if I do, then my other buddy's going to get shot. Right? I got to stay focused and do my job. So your, your brain learns how to cope with what it's seeing and what it's doing and what's going on. And so it turns a lot of stuff off. The problem is, is when you come back, there's no way to flip it back. Right, Your brain does this out of necessity to survive. When you come back, like you can live and have PTSD. So your brain doesn't have that emergency response that I have to do this. So you're switching those back on ends up taking time and processing and figuring it out and you have to be taught how yeah. to do it and i think i think with weed it it helps a lot and there's a lot of other drugs that have been tested by our government yeah mdma to a highly effective yeah. rate mdma is one mushrooms uh, have been I mushrooms. Think, cleared by the studying, yeah. studying psychedelics uh, mushrooms that. at a micro dose level i think <laughs> is is the way they do it right mm-hmm Maybe for uh, therapeutic yes, uses, but yeah. I would highly recommend a heroic dose. Ayahuasca, <laughs> personally like, myself. Uh, that, that's another one that um, that I've talked to with family about. Is that ayahuasca? Uh, people will go and do the um, the actual guided um, meditation mm-hmm. stuff. And so, like, I was like, you know, I kind of want to get a group of veterans together and just go do it, just to, just to just to see what would happen, you know, because like because it makes you relive a lot of stuff that you don't want to relive, but once you Go it also helps it. you see it from a different perspective too. Yeah. DMT, that's one I've I'm in no hurry to go back to that world again anytime soon, but 
that is a powerful experience. Um, yeah, I would definitely caution people with severe trauma going down that rabbit hole. I, it, <clears throat> what blows my mind about all this, though, is like, and not all of these drugs fall into that category. MDMA has some, some history of being not so safe, if not taken care of properly, right? right. So there is some danger associated. Uh, and, and other things maybe, but there's so many things. Weed and shrooms, for sure, no deaths ever caused by those drugs. And our world is so anti those drugs when you could be using them to treat all this other stuff instead of uh, antidepressant that makes somebody kill themselves. Like you were saying, yeah. you know, you felt like on your medication that it, rather than helping you, it made you feel more yeah. uh, gloom and doom and like you're in this hole you can't get out of where weed is known as the happy drug, you know? Right. Uh, now, shrooms, on the other hand, you can have good, bad, right? But in general, my experience uh, in talking to people and stuff is that it's almost always happy. You have your bad trip every now and then, but as long as you're in the right group and the right people, you can get pulled right back out of it. Yeah. So, yes, there's some negative that could come from that, but even then, at the end of the day, you're not hooked. You're not going through withdrawals. You're not having adverse reactions that end up having you dead. And you, you could potentially be curing or at least lowering PTSD in this individual if our government would back it. I know with the uh, MDMA study, I think they had a, a small group. It was only like a dozen people or so. But they had um, overwhelming success. 80, over 80% success rate. Yeah. And, and everybody that was involved in that study were combat-related PTSD Severe trauma. Who had been through all other forms of therapy and medications with no success. So these are the bottom uh, level guys as far as nothing's working. And they, when nothing worked, 80% of the time, this worked. And then when they put in for a re-up on that study to do a larger scale to confirm their findings, which is what they do in the scientific community, they said no. I don't understand why our government says no to that. Why have the initial finding if that initial finding says, hey, this is good, and you're not willing to do the next one? I think it goes back to just the, the country and our puritanical roots of criminalizing feeling good, I don't, you know, ultimately. But for some reason, we'll, we'll pump people full of booze from the age of 16 to death, you know? I don't get it. Nietzsche has a, uh, the philosopher Nietzsche has a idea on that kind of, where he talks about like a lot of that stuff is based on people, other people's fears and insecurities, right? Where uh, they use it as a justification on why they don't do it, right? I'm too scared of what might happen if I take a psychedelic, so therefore I want to like demonize it. Yeah, nobody so else then, can do it either. So then it's a value that I sustain, when in actuality it's your insecurities that prevent you from doing it. So and. Nietzsche applies that to religion, which I may not necessarily agree with, but he talks in, in that about like uh, where they talk about waiting for marriage, right? Saving yourself, abstinence. So he says that these people that can't get laid then <laughs> demonize people that do. And so they praise what they have and don't want. This is the way he worded it. They praise what they have and don't want and criticize the things they can't get but want. And then that way it makes them look righteous for sustaining from these great things that you get when in actuality it's their shortcomings. And he, he claims that that's how religion started and then it swelled up from there. 
But what he, and you hear that and you think that he's very anti-religion, and he kind of was, but he came about it with a logical point of view at least, you know, and that's all I ask from people that I talk to is be logical with me. I don't have to agree with what you're saying, but like at least come from a place that makes sense. And he talked about stuff like that, but he goes on to say that like he recognizes religion's place and he thinks it's a good thing as a whole, that it makes people better versions of themselves. However, these are the shortcomings. And that's one of the things he says is like the whole dancing, you know, like Southern Baptists against dancing, like, come on now their logic, which again, they're coming with logic. So I got to appreciate it is that dancing leads you to a bad place, right? You're going to go to a club, you're going to drink, you're going to get drunk, you're going to submit to the sins of the flesh. Now, if you believe in what Nietzsche says, now these are all things that you're just not doing because of whatever reason. But if you're a religious person, a Christian, and you believe that stuff because you believe that's right, then this is something you should follow. And so it's it's one of those things you got to be able to view people's point of views from both sides and understand it. The problem is, is when you start either victimizing or at least forcing people to behave absolutely by On your fucking side. standards by either side yeah but uh, i guess we can segue into the the closer with that because uh. that would be a can of worms i think we'd have to do on a part two <laughs> anything you want to put out there as far as um if we got any better i'm sure we got veterans listening man a lot of the guys we talk to in bands are man are i know veterans i know me and you talked about trying to stay on the rails and not run off on tangents. I think we might have done that. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty bad about it. But uh, honestly, man, one of the biggest things I wanted to do about this is I had a really good friend of mine that's had some mental health issues. He is not a veteran, but he has some mental health issues. And he recently did an interview uh, with a magazine and stuff. And it went, it was an online publication. And his was about his, his personal struggles. And it really touched me is that, he was willing to show himself weak, right? He was ready, willing to open himself up to the world to show other people that, hey, you're not alone. And when I read that and talked to him about it and what it meant to him, it, it struck a chord with me, and I've wanted to do something like this since. I think it's important to talk about PTSD, to talk about mental health, to talk about struggles, to normalize it, and to normalize uh, moving on and helping people through that stuff. Well, it's uh, like like we said. I think last time we talked was it's it's a, it's it was treated as if it was this abnormal bad thing, like it was a disease. And this, the psych I had to go see, she said it's not abnormal at all. It's it's probably the most common human reaction to a traumatic event that there is, and they're only just now starting to patternize symptoms and how this web of everything comes together. But it's it. Shitty that it did take so long and so much conflict and, and war to, to notice this, which I guess the first documented, probably goes back to the first battle ever, but in the United States, it was really after World War One. Yeah, and it's funny, like you, earlier you had mentioned like World War One, Two, and Korea, Vietnam, all that. Back then, PTSD wasn't considered PTSD, right? It was shell shock, shock. it was battle fatigue, it was, and all of these things were were looked down upon. They were they were treated as if the Cow- reason you yeah, have cowardice. that is yeah. because you're a terrible soldier. You're weak. You yeah. can't handle it. So pack your stuff and get out of here. Which made the good soldiers that had those issues hide them and mask them and mm-hmm. shove them down deep, which made it worse. 
And then you come back, especially talking about Vietnam, uh, you come back and you're treated the way they were when you were getting here. And we're moving as a country in the right direction, and I think it's important to, again, like I said, I feel like if I got to be the martyr for a cause, then it's good. So, like, if people are going to judge me as weak because I did this, which I don't think will happen as much as your mind tells you it will, right? But if that happens, then so be it, you know? We need to keep progressing in this way to where we're normalizing and making it okay for people, men specifically, to where it's okay to bear these weaknesses, right? I always, and that's the way I explained it always, was I don't want to look weak. I don't know if this person that's over here is going to be my enemy next week, and the last thing I want to do is show them the chink in my armor. So for me, for a long time, I fought it and I hit it, and I didn't want anybody to know because of that. And I think it's important as a people that we embrace it and uh, find a way to get past it without our preconceived notions getting in the way right people think drugs are bad because drugs are bad yes heroin is a terrible epidemic in this country and there are many other drugs that are problems but marijuana isn't one of them no and if marijuana can cut down on ptsd symptoms for the a millions essentially yeah, at this point literally yeah and how many undiagnosed on top well, of and, and like we said it, it's you hear about the combat related ptsd because it's probably the most traumatic on a scale that you can imagine and it goes back to like we were saying before which story do you remember do you remember the recruiting story do you remember the blood and guts and gore? so the combat ptsd is more exciting to hear about than a car accident but when you know to people out there like you don't just walk away no, not there at all. is no just walking away. Your your brain is going to process it whether it's during your awake time or when, like with me, it happened it's when I was trying to sleep, and it happened. It took about two weeks, and that that lady that they made me go talk to said that's that's a normal processing for your brain. That's not you're, there's nothing wrong with you. That's normal, and as your brain plays it back and plays it back and processes it those those will become less and less and, and it has but it was a single event for me it wasn't a a year-long tour of stress yeah you know what i mean what's funny the way you say that is like i said before is like i don't ever remember being scared in country but one of the things i talked to my therapist about when i was back at walter reed so when i first came back is how i wasn't ever scared in country when there was a legitimate threat but now i'm a very logical person i can put logic to things even when i'm in the mix midst of shit you know and i'm like i know that this isn't a logical thought process but i'm scared here in america about situations that i find myself in that i shouldn't be example being me and uh my ex-wife which was my wife at the time uh why i was in walter reed we used the metro bus the city bus to get around and we get on a bus, and uh, there is somebody that is in Muslim dress. I don't, I have no problems with Muslims. However, freshly out of Iraq, been blown up by a, a right. few of them. I'm, I'm on edge, right? So I see this person in Muslim dress uh, at the back of the bus, then another one in the middle of the bus. Then we stop at the next stop, and another Muslim person gets on and sits. And now there's one in the front, the middle, and the back of the bus. And I'm sure that this is my PTSD in my head messing with me, but I see one get on the phone, then another get on the phone, then another get on the phone. Now, if you think about that today, if I pick three random people on a bus and pay attention to them long enough, I'm going to see a series of them each getting right, on the phone. Right, right, right. So logically looking back, I can piece this together and realize all this. But at that time, what went through my head was, they're going to blow up this bus. I'm not going to be on it, right? 
So I pull the chain on the side that, hey, this is my stop chain. And we get, and my, my wife like hits it. I hit it and she looks at me immediately like, why? And we stop and I get off and she's like, what is going on? And I explained it to her. And she's like, oh, that is ridiculous, honey. And I'm like, all right, when that bus is blown up tomorrow on the news, like you'll thank me. And I legitimately felt that way. And I thought that way. And I was so relieved to get off that bus. And after the fact, and I'm processing it, I'm realizing how it did paranoid and ridiculous yeah. I was being. And uh, so I talked to my therapist about it. And I was like, I don't understand why in a country where people are shooting at me literally on a daily basis, I don't think there was a day that I was over there that I didn't get shot at or have an explosion around me at some point. Um, and if there was, it was far less than the, than the days that I was shot at. Um, so it, it's weird for me to go from a very real threat, both logically and mentally, to a very not real threat. But yet the not real threat has me on edge and has me paranoid and has in me your mind became very threat. real yeah very real uh but i mean when i was in the hospital again on morphine having hallucinations and stuff i was crossing i had to share a room with somebody else there's a curtain in the middle so i can't even see them they're watching crime stories uh like csi or something i don't know murder stuff and i freak out on my nurse won't let my nurse come near me because they're trying to kill me They've already killed the person that was in the room with me. I've done an interview with the cops where I told them about it. And this nurse is still in here and they're trying to kill me to shut me up so I can't testify. This is what's yeah, look, going on in my head. Those and I fully really interactive it's happening. hallucinations are the worst. And <laughs> they ended up, luckily for me, this was when I first woke up from my coma. So I'm an inpatient in the hospital. My mom and wife, that's their first night there. And so they are invited back to the hospital and told that there's no such thing as visitation uh, hours for us because when my mom got there, she was able to calm me down. And I, I was in tears, like rolling down my face, begging my mom to take me out of this hospital. And my mom's in tears trying to explain to me how she can't do that, you know? And so it's... it's you was fucked up, man. Yeah, it, but it's, it's really <laughs> weird how, how you go from in a real threat to being scared or to not being scared, to a not real threat being scared, and that's all the way PTSD works and the way your brain works. Like I said, your brain's protecting you while you're in that real threat because you have to function. When you get back here, you don't have to function that way, so your body lets you be afraid. Operating in a funhouse mirror, man. Right. Damn. Well, is there any messages you'd like to get out to your fellow brethren out there? Or, um, I know there's probably a lot of people out there that are you know, dealing with the same shit. Man, honestly, it's... You got to look out for each other and nobody else is going to do it. You know, it's, it, I, I honestly, the, the further removed I get away from the military and this is going to maybe rub some people wrong, but I'm starting to see that there, you, you get just as good a brothers outside of the military as you ever did in. Uh, you kind of fast track that when you're in because you're in yeah, a very serious situation together, yeah. and, and yeah, you're seeing each other every day, all day long, but uh, you can you can get just as good a brother as outside of the military and and it, but my point being here is that both military and non-military brothers you got to look out for each other and it's not just military like you said PTA, PTSD exists everywhere. Well, and like you said, people you'd be surprised people actually not that they like to hear those stories, but they'll be captivated. Mm -hmm. the traumatic stories are captivating, you know, and it's it's kind of a, a relief to tell it. 
you know? Yeah, and if you can... Unless you're a serial killer or a fucking... <laughs> well, empathy over apathy. Quantity over quality, brother. If you're a... Uh, that, that's why they always push that, that, that core value because, like... If you're if you're apathetic to everything, then you kind of are a sociopath. And if you're a sociopath, then that's not a good thing. And and you know, because I have a friend that was in the service with me too that that was a, a sociopath, and he's pretty like out there. He moves every situation to fit himself and takes advantage of people all the time. That's how he copes with PTSD apparently, and it's pretty messed up. I, I actually took a psych evaluation and popped up on the sociopath. Uh range of that scale i mean you manipulate me every time i'm on the show i'm, t- I'm, I'm, I'm i just thought i was a smooth talker <laughs> I, I will say that i don't know that if they have done that test on me where where i landed on it i i can't imagine i would follow it I'm, I'm a pretty big empath so at I don't the time know at the time it, she she explained it kind of like how autism is studied it's a spectrum right and she also made it clear that and this was yeah yeah i mean social media was still i mean this was several years ago but it it wasn't as prominent as it is now but it was around and she said to basically to compartmentalize as much information as we take in on a daily basis is everybody is kind of on that spectrum because you have to not give a shit what a lot of people think in today's world and you have to turn that kind of off just to get through your day and uh, I mean, it's it's interesting, and and it's interesting to me because this this is a new. It's, I would okay, it's not new, but it's a cutting edge. In that, there's so many scientific brains and eyeballs and medical minds looking at it, and in a lot of ways, it seems like we're still spitballing. And I think, from what I've seen, is is just <clears throat> you know being in a in a good group of people and just telling stories whether traumatic or funny or whatever, is kind of a good therapy anyways. Oh, absolutely. So um, reach out to reach out to your veteran brothers and sisters and, and, and um, hell, just reach out to your Oklahoma brothers and sisters. Man, we got to take care of each other, get through this, especially with uh, the weather being. It is in, in May, it is kind of a war zone out there when they're calling for baseball-sized hell dropping on your head. Jesus no. fucking Christ. <laughs> well, well I, I have a friend in Wisconsin that was telling me it started snowing yesterday in Wisconsin. I'm not surprised. Talking about, I'll, t- I'll take the hell here over the oh, snow. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Because it'll be 80 degrees the next day. It's, it's less than a week from June. <laughs> it's a couple days from June. It Ugh. snowed. Yes. What is wrong? Why do people live there? I couldn't do it, man. I couldn't do it. <laughs> we asked the same thing in the Middle East, though. It's like, oh, it's 120, 140 <laughs> yeah. degrees. Like, Ugh. why would people live here? I don't. <laughs> I I tried talking our squadron commander and letting us uh, cut and him our BDU pants or DCU pants at the time. Uh, so shorts. that we could wear shorts, because you got Australians over there, you got oh, English yeah. over there. They got shorts, <laughs> sir. Like they have shorts. Like I'm talking him. Them. They'll look professional still. Come on. Now that was still at the time where cargo shorts were worn by dads everywhere. <laughs> Little jab there. I see how it is. I didn't even oh, realize. Oh, I did not even oh, realize. Oh, how fitting that. Oh man. All right, Brian. Thank you for being with us, man. We Not appreciate it. And we'll have to get a part two on. Like you said, maybe we'll uh, dive in a little more deeper. Uh, so you got a you got a lot of, lot to cover in, in an hour and a half. So and I don't ever shut up. Yeah. So I'll, I'll come up with something else to talk about. You too, man. You you too with your stories. I see how it is. Yeah. There's right, actually uh, another good story that I have that I I didn't tell y'all. So well, we, we can maybe cover that on the next. Hell time. yeah, throw it on the back burner. <laughs> maybe we'll get back together on Veterans Day, and we'll I'm, see you in November. I'm up for whatever. <laughs> 
Jonathan, take us out, man. All right. Um, so first off, I, I just want to say thank you to all the veterans out there. And I want to say thank you to all the ones that actually made the ultimate sacrifice of giving their life for basically our freedom. Um, and uh, if you're a veteran and you have PTSD, uh, I know it's going to sound like a broken record, but um, if you need help, you can always call the Veteran Crisis Line. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you press number one, they'll get you in with a, with a person that can talk to you. Um, Honestly, like the biggest thing that I used to do is uh, I used to connect to a lot of different groups. So I'm a part of a group that's called Veteran Claims, uh, Veterans Helping Veterans. Uh, they're not going to help you whenever you go to the VA and stuff like that. Their their number one goal is to not give you your benefits whenever it comes to your 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 um, your actual like percentages and all that kind of stuff. So when you first get out, the best thing you can do is set up those appointments before you get out of the military. Make that stuff clear before you leave any physical or mental um you know stuff going on uh, and then after that whenever you actually get into um, these programs connect with the dab you know connect with uh your um what is it the um bfws and the uh um the, there's del grams in norman uh if you're out here in oklahoma and actually del grams is connected worldwide like uh, a lot of people fly in to even get help from this agency so i mean there's a lot of help out there uh, a lot of people they they just they don't they don't think that they qualify for benefits. They don't uh, they don't think that they're you know that their I guess their disability is worth um, that because there's other veterans that you know had it a lot worse. But every everybody that has PTSD it's different. Um, they get it from different things. Um, and as for like physical injuries, you know if you have them, if you've had surgeries in the military, stuff like that, most of the things are covered. And so they will pay you money every single month for the rest of your life for, for the injuries that they caused you while you were in the military. So, um, but yeah, uh, but yeah, thank you for everybody, you know, listening in today. Uh, and then uh, the local earshot podcast, we run on the value for value system. That's time, talent, and treasure. Uh, so we value everyone's time for listening. Uh, and as for talent, you know, we, we interview uh, music artists, people inside the music industry. We've been interviewed comics. Um, today we have a veteran on, uh, it's a kind of a special episode. Uh, and so, um, we just kind of like to listen to stories and usually our, our gears toward more toward music. But, um, I think that these are important subjects that we need to cover. Um, as for treasure, uh, if you want to donate, you can go to localearshot.com backslash donate. Uh, and on there you can find a, uh, donate tab that has, uh, like crypto and, and uh, also we take Cash App and Bitmo um, and other things. But yeah, just uh, definitely connect to those communities out there that are willing to help veterans. And if you know a veteran in trouble, then uh, probably need to reach out to them and make sure that they're doing all right. So, All right, guys. Thank you all very much. Gary Owen, 7th First, Scouts out.